0: Um, Okay, our scripture reader today is Michael Millet, and he is going to be reading Psalm 51. uh, That's page 474 in the Chair Bible, uh, in honor of God's Word. Uh,
1: Let's stand together. Listen as I read. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken, contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Michael. Uh, so we are in a series uh, called Psalms of the People, and uh, it's been uh, a series that we've been in for most of the summer here, and it's been a, a, fun, a fun journey for us as we have uh, been able to uh, consider psalms that you as a congregation submitted and uh, encouraged us to, to, to look at, and uh, you gave various, various reasons. And so today is, is Psalm uh, 51, and as you just heard, uh, it's, it's a pretty heavy one. It's, uh, it cuts, cuts right to it, the, the psalmist starts off, it's a psalm of, of David, and he starts right off, have mercy on me, uh, O God. And so there's a, a clear uh, situation um, that, uh, that the psalmist is, is feeling, experiencing. And uh, as you might know, uh, many of the psalms have a little subtitle, and uh, a lot of those subtitles are really, really general. Uh, sometimes it just says a psalm of David um, or, or, you know, or whatever, sometimes just a song. Um, this psalm, Psalm 51, uh, if you check your Bible there, it, it gets pretty specific. It's one of the most specific uh, descriptions of where this psalm came from? Where did we get Psalm 51? So I'm going to take a few minutes right now and do the backstory. You, you'll, you'll see in my Bible it says, uh, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Uh, so what's the backstory to Psalm 51? Well, if you uh, wanted to, you could turn to 2 Samuel uh, and, and check out chapters 11 and 12. And that's where we get the narrative account. Uh, That's where we get the details of this situation. Uh, David's situation involves multiple people. Uh, As you'll see here in a moment, it involves a a woman named Bathsheba. It involves a man named Uriah, another man named Joab. Uh, and, And the basic situation is that David is the king of Israel in the glory years. And so Israel had to fight their tails off to, to kind of uh, uh, get their get their kingdom to the right spot to the right place, and they have they have done that. Uh, David uh, was preceded by a king named Saul, and you know they, they they had a song for David, and they were like, you know, Saul killed a lot of people, but David killed a lot of people. Like Saul did some things, but David did these incredible things. And so like David is this, this honored king, this great king. Uh, And so he's the king of Israel during their, uh, you know, the early part of their glory years. Um, And what we find out in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is that the army of Israel is off fighting a battle. And for some reason, the king, David, isn't with the soldiers. He is uh, back in Jerusalem. David is at the palace. And as he is at his palace, he sees a beautiful woman. Uh, He sees her taking a bath on her roof. And as you would imagine, where David is, is is with the highest building. And so he has uh, a a view of a lot of, uh, he's higher than everything else. So he can uh, see a lot of things. And he sees this woman taking a bath. He wants to know who she is. He finds out who she is. Finds out that she is the wife of Uriah, who is one of David's best soldiers. One of his uh, most loyal soldiers. And David concludes that he wants her anyway. Um, Uriah is off at, at battle. And so David uh, calls for her. He's the king. He calls for Bathsheba. He has her brought to the palace. Uh, he goes to bed with her uh, and she gets pregnant. Uh, so what does David do? Well, it's not to realize his sin. It's not to realize uh, his, the damage he has caused to Bathsheba. It's not for him to realize the damage that he's caused to Uriah. Uh, to David's own wife, uh, to his own soul, to his relationship with God. No, none none of those things. His his response to this is to cover his tracks. And so after David has committed this this act of adultery uh, with his wife, he's violated Bathsheba, he's violated his friend Uriah, Um, he decides he's got to solve this problem because Bathsheba is pregnant. And so he brings Uriah, sends message to the front line, says, bring Uriah back. I need to need to see him. So Uriah comes back to Jerusalem and he brings him back in order to get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba so that they would conclude that the baby was Uriah's. So this is this is David's this is where David's at. This is where David's head is, is to try to cover his tracks. Instead of instead of coming clean, it's to, to cover his tracks. So he does. He brings Uriah home, but Uriah is this this faithful soldier who is is in he's in war mode. And as he comes back to Jerusalem, he says, "No, I I, I can't I can't go see my family, like I like I'm supposed to be at battle." And he he doesn't go uh, to his house. And so David's plan uh, to cover his tracks falls apart. So David tries to get him drunk, but that, that doesn't work either. So David is in like total self-absorption mode. He sends Uriah back to the, to the battle, and he gives Uriah a message for the commander Joab. And he says to the commander, this, this note that Uriah himself carried back to the commander, uh, this, this note from the king to the commander says, I want you to set things up to where Uriah's at the very front. I want you to pull back so that it's for sure that Uriah will be killed in battle. We need to get him out of the picture. And uh, sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Joab uh, obeys the orders of the king, uh, and Uriah is killed in battle. Uh, so David is covering his tracks, self-absorption. He's, he's blind. Well, uh, as you continue reading in that account, you find out that one of the Lord's prophets named Nathan shows up, comes to see the king, and we don't have time to get into this, but it's a, it's a, dangerous, it's a dangerous thing uh, to, to go see the king, to initiate that visit. But as Nathan has the courage uh, to obey the Lord and to go see the king of Israel, uh, he stands before David and he tells David a story. And he tells David the story of a wealthy man who has tons of sheep, but he sees this one man who has only one sheep, and the wealthy man wants that one sheep. And so, the wealthy man wants it, he goes, and he takes it. He takes the only sheep from this, from this other man. David hears the prophet share this story, and David is outraged. David is furious that this man with all these sheep would steal this other person's only sheep. And David actually says, that man deserves to die. Like, let's get him. Who is he? He deserves to die. And in one of the most poignant moments in the Bible, the prophet Nathan looks at King David and says, you are that man. This story is about you, David. It's not about sheep. It's about women. It's about wives. It's about, it's about honor and, and dignity towards other people. You've done that. You, you've done that to Bathsheba. You've done that to Uriah. Again, a dangerous thing to make that kind of an accusation against the king. But David has a moment of clarity. David realizes that he was indeed that man. It cuts right to David's heart. And David's next words, it's like the light bulb went on, and David's next words are, I have sinned against the Lord. You know, David is a man who makes a lot of mistakes. You know, if you're familiar with David's resume, with David's story, you know, he makes a lot of mistakes. But his response to this mistake or this set of mistakes It's actually something for us to learn from. It's actually something for us to to absorb and and to consider. And what is his response? Well, his response is Psalm 51. David responds because the whole incident is how Psalm 51 came into existence. That's why we have Psalm 51. This psalm that has served Christians for thousands of years. This psalm that has, has guided Christians in how to respond to their error, to their sin, to their wickedness. This gift... These these 19 verses, they came into existence because David, uh, in his wickedness, uh, did things that were were wicked before the Lord. Nathan Nathan the prophet had the courage to bring them to his attention, and David responded. So, Psalm 51, what we see is that David was guilty. It's not ambiguous. There's a proverb that says, One man's story sounds really, really good until another one rises up and challenges it. That's not this situation. What, what, what Nathan brings before David is right. And as soon as Nathan says, you're that man, David realizes, you know, yes, that's, I'm, I'm guilty of these things. And he comes clean and he writes, writes this uh, powerful, powerful psalm. Well, Psalm 51 has 19 verses, and that's, that's a lot to, to try to cover uh, in, in, a single, in a single sermon. Um, so I'm going to try to deal with this maybe a little bit more categorically. Guilt, confession, and repentance. So, so this, this issue of guilt. Uh, one way to describe guilt is guilt is what we feel when we do something wrong. And maybe you've noticed that our, our current cultural moment, we have a pretty complicated relationship with, uh, with, with guilt. Uh, if you think of the various approaches uh, that our current culture tries to take... Um, you know, one, one is that we're told not to feel guilty. That there's all of these strategies, there's books, there's there's whole podcasts. That 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 the goal of those resources is to provide a way to help us not feel guilty, to try to convince us that we shouldn't have to deal with guilt, that we shouldn't feel guilty, that this is something that we should be that we should remove from our lives, that we should be able to push away and get rid of it. That that's an unhelpful. Uh, emotion, or it's an un- unhelpful feeling. Uh, another approach is uh, to make guilt into kind of like a lighthearted um, joke, almost. Uh, think about this phrase: "guilty pleasures." Guilty pleasures. What, what what comes to your mind? It's probably something like chocolate, or or, or ice cream. Like, what's, what's your guilty pleasure? And it's almost like this kind of a wink-wink, you know, we all have these guilty things. And it's, like, it's almost like a, a light-hearted, uh, almost, like, almost like a joke. Maybe you think that guilt is something that you should just push out and get rid of, ignore it. Maybe you think it's something you should downplay. But the Bible would actually tell us that guilt has a healthy place uh, in, 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 our, in our lives, uh, maybe you would even say, uh, you should say, that the Bible would make the case that we need guilt. Now, a lot, a lot of times when we talk about guilt, we also think about shame. And this sermon isn't really about shame. But because we so often tie those things together, and there is a legitimate overlap uh, between those two, just, just let, let, me, let me just maybe, maybe make a contrast between guilt and shame. Guilt is more about disobedience. It's about breaking a law or breaking a code. Shame is really more about perception. It's about how others see you or how you see yourself. It has a much more relational dynamic uh, to it. And so uh, there's guilt and there's shame. This sermon is focusing more on guilt, but we're going to bump into shame a couple times. So this idea of guilt I do want to recognize that there is false guilt or distorted guilt. There's guilt that you might feel in your life for things that are actually forgiven. Things that you have addressed. Things that you've actually worked through. This is one of Satan's great works in the lives of especially God's people. Is to continue to bring back things and burden people with mistakes that they have made that have actually been forgiven. And he likes to use it like a bat and just beat you down with mistakes that you have made, that you've actually addressed, that you've actually navigated, that you've actually turned from. And so, so this idea of, of, of sins that you have actually been forgiven of, like when you feel guilt for those sins, that is a false, distorted guilt. You, you actually can be forgiven of your sins. And if, if you've worked through that, you, you should rest in that forgiveness. You should turn and fight the fight to believe that you've actually been forgiven, Uh, Sometimes we feel guilt, and this would be another category of distorted guilt, for something that's not actually wrong. Maybe you grew up in an environment where there were kind of an extra set of laws or an extra set of rules that actually aren't in the Bible, that actually aren't God's rules, And, and you were convinced growing up that these were wrong to do. So kind of going way back, you know, things like wearing jeans That that, that has no grounding in the Bible, but there's a lot of people that feel like, oh, should I, should I, you know, especially years ago, should I wear jeans? Uh, There's a a long list of things in that category, but feeling guilt over things that God doesn't actually say are wrong. That's distorted guilt. And then things, uh, another category of distorted guilt would be things that are not your fault. Things that you actually didn't do that maybe someone else is putting upon you. Um, things that you've experienced in life, things that were done to you that you didn't initiate. And some of us really need to hear this. Uh, there's, there's a movie called Good Will Hunting. And it's, it's several years old now, but there is a scene that goes down as one of the greatest scenes in, in, in movies. Uh, the, the, the main character, his name Will, Will Hunting, and, and the actor is Matt Damon. And he has had a, uh, he's super, super smart. He's from Boston, so he's wicked smart. Um, but uh, he, he's, had this, he's had a terrible, terrible life. He's had a life that's been full of, of, of abuse and abandonment and mistreatment. And uh, he's kind of got this cynical view towards, uh, towards uh, life. He's kind of getting himself in, in a lot of trouble. And uh, one of the other significant characters in that movie is, is Robin Williams, who functions as a counselor that he is required to go see. And it's like, uh, you know, Matt Damon's character, Will Hunting. Like, Will is smarter than the counselor. The counselor knows that Will is smarter than him. Um, and yet, this counselor continues to, to engage uh, in, in, in Matt Damon in, in Will Hunting's life. And as the counselor continues to hear the severity of Will Hunting's life, there comes a point in time where the counselor finally says to Matt, to, to Will Hunting, it's not your fault. And he has to repeat it. And then Matt Damon, Will Hunting, just, just begins to weep. It's like, all of a sudden, it's like he realized, like, it's, it's not my fault. Like, all of this abuse, all of this abandonment, like, it was done to me. And he's living this life burdened by guilt. And he so desperately needed to hear, that, that's, that's not your fault. And so, so there's distorted guilt. There, there's, there's false guilt, and we need to recognize that, and we need to, to fight the fight to believe what God has to say. So th- there is false guilt, but there is real guilt. There is true guilt. And when we experience real guilt, it is our heart confronting our behavior. If you know you should treat people with kindness, and instead... You're continually irritable, you lose your temper, you're treating people really bad on Facebook or Twitter. You should feel guilty. You should feel guilty. You are are violating a standard that you know is right. And guilt then becomes this, this, it's your heart confronting your behavior. And in those situations where true guilt shows up, it's actually a gift, it's like an alarm. It's like a spotlight that shows us that something is not aligned. We're not living in line with what we say we believe. You might say, okay, but then what do I do with this guilt? Maybe some of you are here today and you're just burdened with guilt. It's, it's like, it feels like you're carrying around this 100 pound weight all the time. What do you do with your guilt? Well, man, welcome to the club. This is a massive problem in our current culture. There's a phrase that's become really, really popular, and it's cancel culture. We we, we live in a time of of cancel culture, where if you cross the line, you you, you can't ask for forgiveness. You you can't say you're sorry. You're done. You're you're sidelined. You're you're out. Our society does not know what to do with guilt. Uh, One of my favorite authors, David Brooks, he writes for the New York Times. He has a column in the New York Times um, he, you know, he, he grew up in New York City and then later moved to Philadelphia, but he went to great schools. Uh, he got accepted into the University of Chicago, went to Sh- University of Chicago and gra- graduated from there. So he got like, a- as far as our, what our modern world could provide, he got the best educational opportunities. And one of the things that David Brooks says is that all along the way, they kept being told, you know, David Brooks is probably 60s, early 60s maybe. And he's like, all throughout my life, we kept being told that we're going to dismantle all of these institutions and structures and religions. And we're going to have a society where it will be free. You'll be free. And you'll be able to live the way you want to live. And guilt will be gone. And judgment will be gone. And like, that's what the future is going to look like. And David Brooks concludes... That is not what happened. Everything got dismantled. Everything got torn down. But the guilt didn't go anywhere. And one of his columns is titled, uh, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And I've referenced this article a few different times in sermons over over the years. Um, but, but, But what he is looking out and seeing in the culture, is this is what he says. He says, sin is a stain, a weight, a debt, but... Mainstream culture has no clear path upward from guilt, either for individuals or for groups. So you get a buildup of scapegoating, shaming, and condemnation. This is surely a moral crisis in the making. He's looking around and saying, we, we all make mistakes. All of us live inconsistently with what we say we believe. And our modern culture has taken away all the avenues to deal with it. And then he says, it's a moral crisis in the making. I think we're experiencing it right now. Well, our modern society might not offer us resources to deal with our guilt, but God does. So now we're, we're going to use the Bible. We're, we're going we're to reference this, this, this uh, great psalm, Psalm 51. And if you don't know a lot about the Bible, let, let, let me just address this, this misconception There's a misconception that the Bible is just packed full of goody-two-shoes. That the Bible is all of these stories of all of these successful people who just obeyed God at every turn. That is such a wrong conception of what the Bible offers us. The Bible is actually full of tragic failures, of wicked actions, of train wrecks. In other words, the Bible is full of real life. Stories like yours and mine. People who didn't always get it right. So guilt is actually a really big part of the Bible, of the stories that we read in the Bible. And David may be the best example. Psalm 51 is uh, certainly one of his greatest gifts uh, to us. So look at what David does with his guilt. And it's mainly two things. Confession and repentance. Confession. What, what, what is confession? So if guilt, you know, we said guilt is something that you feel when you do, when you do something wrong. Confession is agreeing with God about your sin. It's agreeing with God's evaluation of, of your actions. It's agreeing with God that you actually did that. So, so when you say, I'm going to confess of a sin, it is you saying, yes, I recognize that God says what I did is wrong. And yes, I... I did that. You, you, you're owning those two things. That that indeed violated God's standards, and I am the one who did it. That, that, th- those are inherent in this idea of, of confessing sin. And as you read Psalm 51, you recognize that David is not dodging his sin. Now, it took a prophet, a prophet of the Lord, to tell him a story to open his eyes. But once his eyes were opened, he's not dodging his sin. Look at verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Now, now some people have gotten a little upset about that phrase against you and you only have I sinned. And they say, well, isn't that denying the fact that he sinned against Bathsheba and he sinned against Uriah and he sinned against his wife? He, he sinned against the commander Joab by giving him that, that order. Like he, he sinned against a bunch of people. What, what, what's he talking about? Well, well, David is not denying that he sinned against those other people. What, what he's doing is he's recognizing that ultimately all sin is against God. And Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther you know, 500 years ago, he, he said that you never break any of the other commandments without first breaking the first commandment. You know, the, the, the first commandment tells us to love the Lord your God. No other gods before me. It, 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 it's him. He's ultimate. So he sets the standard. He is the one who leads you. No other gods before me. So until you break that, you're going to live a life of obedience. But as soon as you break that first commandment, boy, now it's a, it's a free-for-all. And you're going to be breaking all other kinds of commandments. And so Martin Luther's point is you, you never break any other commandment without first breaking the first commandment. And that's, that's what David is, is recognizing as he's talking to God. He's saying, I recognize here that ultimately I sinned against you. Later in this psalm, as you come down to verse 14, he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Um, some, some versions have that translated a little differently. But that, what that phrase seems to be indicating is, God, deliver me from murder, fr- from taking someone's life. So there's this owning, there's this recognition of what he has done and the actions he has taken. He's confessing before the Lord. He's also repenting. And repentance is a beautiful word uh, that has this idea of turning to it. Um, But sometimes we think of it as as, as turning from sin to good deeds. Um, So I stop doing bad things and I start doing good things. That's repenting. I turn from my bad deeds and I start doing good deeds. But the Bible would actually fundamentally talk about uh, repentance in a a deeper way. It would actually say it's turning from sin to God. So the word repent means to turn. But biblical repentance is not just turning from bad, bad behavior to good behavior. It's actually turning from yourself to God. It's turning from trusting in your way to trusting in God's way. Instead of you getting to decide what's right or what's wrong, it's actually reorienting yourself and trusting in God's way. And so you actually believe that what God says is right is right. And what God says is wrong is wrong. And there's this reorientation of yourself from depending upon you to actually putting your trust in God. Now, of course, that's going to involve obedience. If you've oriented yourself towards the the God of heaven, then of course you're going to obey him. So yet yes, it's going to appear as someone who is pursuing good deeds, but it's deeper than that. It's actually a reorientation of your heart. Verses seven through twelve. I won't read all of those, but as you read through those verses, you you, you see you see David longing. He he wants to know God. He wants to be with God. He wants to be like God. He 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 says, you know shape my life, shape my affections, shape my actions. I, like, I want to align myself with who you are. It's a beautiful picture of biblical repentance. Verses 13 through 15, he wants to share his failure and mercy with other people. So there's this, this, this willingness as he's navigating confession and repentance that he's not trying to live hidden. He's actually, he's actually able to, to talk about his failures. He, he wants other sinners to, to hear what God has done. In his mercy towards him. In verses 16 and 17, he knows that his performance is not a solution. He, he, need, he needs a humble heart. So you see someone who has navigated their guilt and realized that what God offers them is to own it, to confess of it, and then to turn, to turn from self to God. Have you confessed your sin to God? Have you confessed your sin to, to others? You some maybe in this room are trying to repent, but you haven't confessed, and you you you, you need both. So sometimes we just think, "Oh man, maybe nobody knows about that. I'm just going to turn. I'll, I'll do the repenting part." But the confession part is an, it's it's a fundamental component to being right with God. Have you repented of your sin? Maybe some of you you you've tried to confess. You, you, you own, oh yeah, I violated that standard of God again. It's my fault. I did it again. But you never change. You, you actually don't reorient your heart in, in trusting God's way instead of your own way. And it's evident by your behaviors. You, you, you need both. You need to both confess and to repent. We all do. Are you turning to God? Some are repenting but turning to something less than God. Maybe you've owned your sin and now you're just trying to do good. You, you recognize you violated a standard of God. You've, you've confessed that. But your repentance is it, is it a turning just to good deeds? Just trying to turn the page, turn over a new leaf. Well, the Bible's going to tell you it's not, that's not going to work because your heart wants, wants what your heart wants. We need a reorientation of our heart from ourself to God. David saw the severity of his sin, he agreed with God, and he turned from that sin back to God. So, what an incredible story. This is a 19-verse confession and repentance of some of the worst deeds that we can imagine. Incredible story. David's a great example. But we need more than an example. Psalm 51 tells us of David's forgiveness but what about mine? What about yours? Three thousand years later, what are we supposed to do with our stuff? Well, the reality of needing something more was built into the very rhythms of God's people, the nation of Israel. There's a, 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 something that the nation of Israel practiced called the Day of Atonement, and you can read about that in Leviticus chapter sixteen and seventeen. And you know, the, the nation of Israel had all of these sacrifices that they did all of the time at the temple. But they had this one day, the Day of Atonement, was the, you could maybe say it's like a catch-all. That on the Day of Atonement, the point of the Day of Atonement, at least in part, was God, over the course of this year... We've tried to confess of our stuff. We've offered a lot of animals and blood sacrifices and grain sacrifices. and we, we, We've done all of these things that you told us to do. And we've, we've tried to come to the temple when we should. And we've tried to repent of this and that. But we're uh, aware enough to admit the fact that we probably didn't catch it all. We pro- There's probably some sins that, that weren't addressed. There's probably some sins that we didn't deal with. And on the Day of Atonement, what they did was they took two goats... And one of the goats was meant to to model this, this, to to be the picture of paying for sin. And that goat was sacrificed. It was to uh, atone for, to pay for, to offset the sins. But the second goat was a goat that they sent away out into the wilderness. And that second goat was meant to represent the taking away of the stain, the taking away of the consequences of, of sin. It's actually called the scapegoat. That, that's where the term comes from. Is that that goat took everything from the nation of Israel and was sent out. It was rejected. It was cast out. And the idea was, take our sin away. Take our sin away. Well, you know what happens on the cross? On the cross, we see that this ritual, the Day of Atonement, was pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus. And on the cross, we see that Jesus actually represents both goats. At the crucifixion, Jesus was sent out. Jesus was sent out of the city, we are told. And he was sent out as the scapegoat. And all the sins of all the world were put on Jesus. And he was sent outside the gate. But as many of you know, he was also sacrificed as the payment for sin. And so on the, on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, he fulfills the role of both goats. He's sent outside the city to take away the sin, and he is sacrificed as the payment for sin. Do you see from the earliest pages of the Old Testament, God was telling us that any time forgiveness is granted, it is costly. Forgiveness costs. The Day of Atonement shows us that. The entire sacrificial system shows us that. Things are constantly losing their life because of sin. Then you get to the New Testament and Jesus takes the cost of sin upon himself. Why? So that you and I could go free. If you have never come to God for forgiveness, then listen to me. All of your efforts to satisfy your very real guilt are going to come up short. If you're trying to deal with your guilt any other way, than to actually come to the one person who can take the guilt upon himself and pay the penalty, your efforts are going to come up short. Now, some of us deal with pride. And, pride, and maybe you're dealing with pride in your heart right now. And, and pride is going to shout to you. And it's going to say, it's going to keep you from coming to Christ because it's going to say to you, I don't need to do that. Sin's not that bad. I think I can do it. Don't, I don't deal with that much guilt. I don't feel that much guilt. I don't don't think I need to do that. Maybe some of you are dealing with shame. Well, shame will keep you from coming too. Because shame is going to give you this sense of having to earn it. And you're going to conclude surely I, I have to do more than that. Do you know how bad what I've done is? Do you know how severe what I have done is? You can't just pray some prayer. You can't just put your trust in Jesus. I I, I have the weight of the world on me. That's not enough. Pride will keep you from coming. Shame will keep you from coming. But Jesus cuts through all that. And the message of Jesus on the cross is this. Yes, you do need forgiven. Whether you think you do or not, the Bible consistently reveals to us that all have sinned. Everybody. Everybody has failed. And so some of the guilt that you feel is real guilt. And Jesus says, yeah, you do need forgiveness. And guess what? No, you you can't earn it. It doesn't matter how much work you put in. You're right. It's too bad. It can't actually be earned. But Jesus is saying, I've already taken the cost. I've absorbed the debt and I will give it to you. Just come. Don't let pride keep you. Don't let shame keep you. Come. You know, maybe you've experienced this, but but shame is often related to a belief that your actions are, you know, they're, they're, they're so bad that nobody is going to accept you, especially the person that you wronged. And maybe you've had someone come into your life and they try to, like, make you feel better by saying, oh, no, no, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. But when you know it's bad, that, the, the, those comments, they, they are so empty. When someone comes up to you and tries to say, oh, no, it's, it's not that bad. I think they'll get over it. You know, kids are resilient. They'll, they'll, they'll get a, it, it, it doesn't help you at all. But what if, what if someone looked at what you had done and actually said, you're right. Like what you did really is that bad. But they don't quit on you. They don't run away from you. They don't actually blink. That's what Jesus has done. Jesus has looked at all of your sin, all of your stuff, and he does not downplay it for a single second. And we like to say around here that the gospel tells us that our sin is so bad that someone had to die for it. That's how bad it is. Jesus is not downplaying your sin at all, he's saying it's super severe but I've got a solution that's even greater than that. And he comes along and he offers us forgiveness. Ask him to forgive you. You will be blown away because this is what he does. Regardless of what our world is saying, real guilt isn't lying to you. You have a debt and you need outside help. Martin Lloyd-Jones has this little illustration, and he said that, it, it, just, just imagine, a friend comes up to you, you're down, you're down at a restaurant or a cafe or something, and your friend comes up to you and says, hey, I was just at your house looking for you, and uh, I, th- I thought you'd be there, but while I was there, a messenger showed up, and they had a bill, and, uh, and I, 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 I paid it for you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you don't know how to respond to that until you find out what the bill was. Because if the bill was six cents of over postage, you'd give them five and say, thanks for taking care of that. But if it's the $500,000 debt that you owe the IRS, you would fall down and weep. And Martin Lloyd-Jones' point is this, what do you think Jesus did for you on the cross? Do you you have any idea of what Jesus did for you on the cross? Your answer will make all the difference. You know, the person who submitted this psalm, Psalm 51, is someone who, just like David, really screwed up. And their actions have cost them dearly. The consequences of their actions have taken away their, uh, their livelihood, it sent them to a time in, in prison, lost a lot of relationships. Psalm 51 hits pretty close to home. And yet for that individual, here we are, years later, and God has used the severity of that circumstance in their life to create a dependence and a trust on God that they never had before that that, uh, situation. See, when they finally agreed with God about their actions, when they turned from trusting in themselves to trusting in God, they found real forgiveness They found real acceptance, and like David, with all the complexities, they're actually having the joy of their heart restored. It's not overnight. A lot of hard things in stories like this. But that kind of forgiveness, that kind of rescue is available to you too. All you need is to see that you need it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this, this psalm, and I know there's all kinds of specifics in those 19 verses where, where David invites us into all these different aspects and avenues of his sin, of his relationship with you, of his hopes for the future, of his, the, the, his willingness to be open with his life. God, I, I, I pray that you would let this be a precious psalm to every one of us, that we would grab hold of it and cling to it, especially when we have failed. But God, we've all failed. And so would you Would you help? Would you let this be a guide to us? Would you let this be language, verbiage that, that we can turn to that informs us on how to talk to you about our, our, our mistakes and our failures? And then God, would you give us just intense gratitude, deep thankfulness for the fact that while you don't downplay our sin at all, you have provided the ultimate answer, the ultimate solution to our problem, to our guilt in the person of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.